Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United City Greensboro podcast, a church in the heart of Greensboro with a desire to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our community at unitedcitygso.com. Enjoy today's teaching. Are you ready? Awesome. You guys seem excited and ready to go. I recognize the density and the complexity of this letter that we are in called Romans. In fact, I had at least two of you come up to me last week and ask, why are we doing a teaching series in Romans? And I responded, it's a good question, to be honest with you. It's a good question. But I think some people get intimidated by Romans and don't want to address it in a space in terms of teaching And we felt like the summer is such a great time to deepen ourselves and to go into something that feels a bit challenging. So this is what we are doing. We are trudging through these waters. And as I referenced last week, one of the reasons Romans can feel like such a daunting task is because Paul covers a lot of different topics, both theological topics, ethical and moral topics, cosmological topics, and communal and pastoral topics as he is speaking into a people at a place in a specific time in history. But all of these ideas that he is hitting on are all threaded together in a beautiful way throughout this entire book. And they are bookended, or the entire letter is bookended with the reality of the gospel. The gospel. I said last week, the Greek word is euangelion, or the royal announcement that Jesus of Nazareth is king and the implications, therefore. Jesus is not just savior. He is also king. And most of us were presented with a gospel that just positioned him as savior, but forgot that he's also Lord and king of the cosmos. And so we want to be able to clarify, as we did last week, what the gospel is. And to put it simply, it is that Jesus is king. And because Jesus is king, it means that Caesar is not. It means that we are not. It means our president, throughout times past, kings across the world, rulers across the world, are not. Jesus is king. But our hope in this teaching series isn't that we all become folk theologians who can say we trudge through Romans, but that we can be transformed by encountering King Jesus and our inner and exterior lives be changed as a response to that reality. That's my aim. Every Sunday that I teach and preach, my desire for all of us is that we encounter King Jesus and that when you hear the presentation of the gospel, something happens inside of you. There is a response to that reality. Our inner life and our exterior lives are changed because of that. So I don't want to just dump content, dump new information for you. We can do that inside spaces, but I want all of us to be changed and transformed by Jesus of Nazareth because the Lord knows we need to be changed. And our world and our moment needs hope. I shared with you that Romans has two primary literary sections. Chapters 1 through 8 and chapters 9 through 16 with four main units of thought or four chapters, you might say, in this letter. Chapters 1 through 4, 5 through 8, 
9 through 11, and 12 through 16. So that kind of helps us navigate these, these dense and deep waters as we move along in the teaching series and recognizing there's four main units of thought. So once we get to Romans 5, we're like, okay, we've turned into a new chapter of thought. Each of these, when centered on the gospel reality that Jesus is king, they look at Jesus, I think, in his work through a specific lens. The first unit of thought looks at Jesus as rescuer. The second unit of thought looks at Jesus as representative. The third unit of thought looks at Jesus as a reconciler. The fourth unit of thought looks at Jesus as a restorer. And even though you can't water down Romans or, or strip it down to some kind of simple cliche using four R's and repetition, I think this is helpful for us, okay? If anything, would you please get that Jesus is rescuer, representative, reconciler, and restorer, despite all the nuance and the tertiary things we're going to talk about on Sunday mornings, okay? All right, very good. Because sometimes I ask you, hey, how'd you like the sermon last week? It was great. Oh, that's awesome. What was it about? Uh, Jesus? <laughs> I'm like, yes, yes, kind of. Keep going. <laughs> um, we, we, we are to go through this letter a bit like a plane, okay? Starting on the ground with a people in a place, as I mentioned, and then we ascend high into the clouds where it feels like we can't see anything on the ground. Then we go back down to see the lay of the land and get an idea of the land. I love flying in planes and be able to see for miles high above the land. Paul goes from intricate theology in that first half of this book to plain practice in the back half of the book. Because if, if dense theology doesn't turn into practical theology, we've missed the mark. It's got to have implication in how we live. He just wants us to hold on to the end. So buckle your seatbelt on this plane as we ride through. A key aspect to understanding any book especially Romans, requires for all of us the ability to put our feet on the ground as well as get into the plane and see the above narrative. We have to be both on the ground as well as up in the sky to see the larger narrative. This is called reading the Bible canonically. I've shared this before reading the Bible canonically, or it could also be called biblical theology. And that's asking the question, how does what we are reading connect with the larger narrative of the scriptures? How does what we are reading fit as a puzzle piece into the larger masterpiece that is the library of the scriptures? I say this because Paul forces us to have this framework if we are to understand what he is communicating. He forces all of us to have this reading of the scriptures if we're going to have any understanding of what he is communicating. In this letter, he has 50 scriptural references. He's not just regurgitating his own thoughts that are inspired by God. He's actually tying in the entire narrative of the scriptures. And keep in mind this, Paul or Saul, which is his Jewish name, or is his Jewish name, is not only ethnically Jewish, but he is also a Jewish scholar who sat and apprenticed under the famous Rabbi Gamaliel, which we see in Acts chapter 22. So Paul is ethnically Jewish. He's coming from that place, but he's also a Jewish scholar. He's brilliant. He sat under one of the greatest teachers in the ancient Jewish 
world. So imagine, to kind of put it in like layman's terms, imagine Michael Jordan teaching us how to play basketball. Or Picasso teaching about painting. Or Jimi Hendrix, how to play guitar. Paul is an Israelite. He's Jewish, and he is a Jewish scholar. Paul is not a Calvinist. Paul is also not an Arminian. He is a Jewish scholar. And he has left all of this dense work for Calvinists and Arminians alike to debate for centuries. So, why does this matter in terms of Paul? Because it provides for us a background that is necessary to comprehend specifically as it pertains to God and his relationship to the world through Paul's family, which is Israel. We have to understand where Paul is coming from to be able to have a sense of understanding and comprehension in terms of what he is communicating because God is moving in the world and has been moving in the world through his chosen people, that being Israel. It's a great book, dense book, by uh, the New Testament scholar who I love, uh, N.T. Wright. It's literally just called Paul. And it's like this biography written by N.T. Wright on Paul. And it provides a good framework of who is this Paul guy who, who writes almost half of the New Testament. I think it's helpful. So, in light of all this, the story of God, creation, fall, redemption, restor- new creation, restoration, must be understood to understand what is happening. You've got to have a high-level awareness past, present, and future. And so here is the predicament that Paul finds himself in, or I guess all of humanity finds himself in at the center of history, okay? As dense as this is, I'm going to try to make it simple for all of you, as best that I can. Sin, disorder, and chaos entered the good created world through Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Now, often scholars or theologians call this the fall. However, if you read 3 through 11, you see the larger picture of the fall. You see sin and chaos and disorder. Sin creates disorder. It creates chaos, okay? We see that in Genesis 3 through 11. So what does God do in Genesis chapter 12? God chose to make a covenant promise with Abraham and his family to help bring rightness, justice, and order to a world gone awry. God always uses his image bearers. He always has chosen families to work through, a couple or just a handful. Well, that people, the Israelites, also go awry and end up being disordered and turning away from God. And this is what is covered in Romans chapter 1 through 8, 118 through 320. So if you want to go backwards and read kind of that section, you see Paul talking about this isn't just a pagan Gentile situation in terms of a world gone awry. This has happened to us as well. This has happened to us as well. But God is faithful and always faithful to his covenant, to his promise. So, What is God to do in this predicament? He can't show partiality or he isn't just. But he also can't start over because it isn't upholding the covenant he made with Israel. So what must he do? He is in between a rock and a hard place. 
where it seems as though there may only be one way through. Have you ever done the human like not thing before, like in a team building exercise? And it's like, there's really only one way to make this thing happen, or we're just going to be locked in for the rest of the day, maybe even days, weeks, I don't know. Same kind of scenario here. There's this knot, and there's only one way to be able to unravel all of it. The tension at the center of history sits between God's justice and God's faithfulness. How might he achieve both? How can he be judge and deliverer? At the same time. And that dynamic and the answer at a theological and a a cosmological or universal level is brought into plain sight in the passage we are looking at today. How can God respond to this predicament that all of humanity finds themselves in? 321 is the hinge in this first unit. So we're shifting gears in this first unit. Paul diagnoses the issue and the problem at a large cosmological level. And 321, he begins to turn and provides an answer. And he completes his answer in chapter 4, verse 26. So that kind of provides you a runway in terms of how he's responding to this predicament. And because God loves us, we were created out of love, by love, for love. The problem, though, is we have disordered loves. We end up loving the wrong things. It's not that we aren't lovers. We are lovers. We just love the wrong things. St. Augustine gets into all of this if you go read him and uh, his work, specifically in Confessions, which is another dense read. So uh, that being said, because God loves us, he will not allow humanity's perpetual rebellion to happen indefinitely. Won't do it. Can't happen. So that lays the groundwork. Are you hanging in there so far? Everyone good? Awesome. Sounds great. If you're lost, you're just like, I'm not going to be honest. I'm just not going to tell you I'm lost. (laughs) Romans 3.21. Here we go. But now, key phrase, underline it, highlight it in the scriptures. But now, apart from the law or apart from Israel, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. testify. Now, remember, we talked last week about the righteousness of God being God's covenant justice or covenantal justice and his faithfulness. And his righteousness describes how he rectifies an unjust and disordered world. So God's righteousness is the mechanism and the character by which he is able to rectify an unjust and disordered world and make all things right. But the righteousness previously had been made known just through prophets and the law. But now we're looking at a situation here where there's a new event that's happened. That which the law and the prophets testified about or foreshadowed. And who throughout all of the Hebrew scriptures or the Tanakh did the law and prophets testify about coming to usher in a restored order? Jesus the Messiah all through the Old Testament, even going back to the beginning of Genesis. And we actually saw this on the Emmaus Road, back to the Emmaus Church kind of situation. If you go read that story in Luke 24, Jesus is telling about how the law and the prophets testified about him, spoke to him. The law and prophets revealed Jesus as both Israel's covenant king, Messiah, and 
the rescuer of the entire world. All nations, including both Jew and Gentile, which was a role originally given to Israel. Israel was given a vocation. God's like, I'm going to use you to go make things right into all the nations. But that doesn't happen. So that's when God has to incarnate himself through the person of Jesus. So now we see Jesus revealed as both Israel's covenant king or Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew for king. And he's the rescuer of the entire world because he is God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. He's king of the cosmos. He is the ruler over all, both Jew and Gentile. This is Paul elaborating on Romans 1, 16 through 17. And by Paul saying, but now, it's one of those famous Bible buts, okay? But now, the New Testament scholar Michael Bird says, there is a new state of affairs that gives hope to this predicament. This new event is the revelation of God's righteousness in Messiah Jesus. Key moment. In some ways, this reminds me of, have you seen those movies those really cheesy, romantic, Hallmark-type movies that honestly is a guilty pleasure for me. Don't judge me, okay? Where a couple is about to get married, they're on the altar, and everyone in the, in the entire room knows this shouldn't be happening. And then the long-lost lover barges in the back door. And he's like, not today! I'm here! And then, like... The actual couple that was supposed to be destined together actually gets married and all things go well. That's kind of what's happening. Or if you're more into like criminal activity type movies or law type movies, there is some sort of new evidence that changes the verdict and someone barges in the back door and is like, I've got the evidence. And it changes the entire narrative, changes the whole story. Paul's dramatic, but now is that barging in the back door. That's what's happening here in this moment. Some of you are still hung up on the fact that I like Hallmark, and that's okay. I am totally and utterly complete and whole in Jesus. <laughs> so the Son of God becoming human in Jesus is the climax. For all you literary nerds, it's a climax or the turning point of the entire story of God. And that climax is what we call the gospel. It's the climax of the story. It's the hinge. It's the point of no return. It's where history is changed forever. It's that moment. And God's righteousness, or his standard rightness, that's what righteousness means. It means rightness. His standard rightness is embodied now in Jesus the King. God's righteousness is embodied in Jesus the King, not in Torah. It says specifically that his righteousness was revealed apart from the law. Because obedience to the law is not the basis for accessing salvation. I.e., getting your Jewish lifestyle on will not put you right. Clearly, it hasn't worked for centuries and millennia. And remember who is saying this. This is Paul, who is Torah observant, Jewish scholar, scholar among scholars, tribe of Benjamin, Jewish as Jewish could be. 
Michael Bird goes on to say, Paul sees the law as possessing a prophetic function. The law, or the Torah in the Old Testament, with its stories and sacrificial system, all pointed ahead to the redemptive work of Israel's messianic king. Thus, the law and the prophets bear witness to God's promise that he would reveal his salvation in the death and resurrection of the Messiah. But remember, the predicament wasn't just about Israel's covenant. Also about God saving humanity. And now, the person and work of Jesus is unleashing the righteousness of God, the rightness of God, into all of the world, into all nations. The world, friends, is made right, just, and whole through Jesus and the establishment of his kingdom. The world will never be made right through political policy. Please don't put all your hope in it. Please don't. The world will only be made right through the person and work of Jesus. Now, Romans 3, 22. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now, there is much scholarly debate around the translation, faith in Jesus Christ. I'm curious, does someone else have a different translation in your Bible, in the scriptures? Anybody else? Some of you definitely do. I know for a fact you do. <laughs> Some might say, what's, what's it say? The faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That sounds different, does it not? Faith in Jesus Christ versus faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Josh is reading from the Common English Bible. I know that for a fact. They sound different, do they not? And that's because there's been great debate amongst New Testament scholars about the Greek and the positioning of words. In fact, Michael Bird, who, as you can tell, is a New Testament scholar, an Anglican scholar who I love, and he's an Aussie, so he sounds really cool, and N.T. Wright, who I also love, is a British scholar at Oxford, brilliant mind, they disagree on this specific translation. And they've actually written books together. So I'm like, this is kind of neat. That being said, this statement, faith in Christ or faithfulness of Jesus Christ, has everything to do with the subject and the object of the sentence in the Greek language. Now we're getting into the weeds a little bit. But it matters. What we do know is this. Semantics aside or translation aside. Salvation and righteousness is executed in the faithful obedience of Jesus the Messiah and appropriated by humanity through faith or believing in him and his work. Did you follow that? Salvation and righteousness is executed in the faithful obedience of Jesus the Messiah and appropriated by humanity through faith or believing or trusting in him and his work. Thus, Jesus is the subject of divine deliverance and the object of human believing. He is the subject of divine deliverance. He's doing all the work and he's the object of our trust. 
the object of our believing. Jesus is both faithful in the covenant. Why? He comes through the line of David. He comes through Israel. He is Jewish. But he's also obedient to the Father as fully God and fully man, making him righteous and just. You guys are going to be theologians after you leave here today, I promise. Or just more confused. (laughs) Either one is fine with me, I guess. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, I think speaks to this. I'm going to give you a second to go there real quick. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Which is a very Jewish-oriented letter. You guys there? Okay. In the past... God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory or divine presence and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. God always gets the final word. And the final word or the logos is Jesus incarnate. Jesus is the final word. He is the glory or the divine presence of God made manifest. Jesus becomes this new temple. He is the embodiment of the presence of God. But the original intent was for humanity to be the radiance of God's glory. And we failed. We failed. All of humanity fails. Look around now. We failed. So, as we have seen, a very famous verse, we see this as the great need, the great issue, the great challenge, for all have sinned and fall short of that divine presence or the glory of God. Key word, all. Every last person that has ever walked the face of the planet, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not just our husband, not just our wife, not just our friend that drives us bonkers, not just our little sister or little brother that keeps picking at us. Not just our dad who's a jerk. Or not just that relative who did harmful things to you and told you not to tell anybody. Not just that boyfriend who took advantage of you. Not just the boss who treats you like crap at work. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin, dear friends, is the great equalizer. It levels the playing field. I've said this before. When a mark isn't a hit, it isn't hit. And the idea of sin or hamarsha, is to miss the mark. 
whether off by an inch or off by a mile, it doesn't hit. I remember playing basketball growing up in high school, and I was an uh, average slash below average high school basketball player. But I was on the team. I was on the team. And I remember hearing my dad use this phrase, he couldn't hit the broad side of a barn. Have you ever heard that before? Anybody that played basketball growing up, he couldn't hit the broad side of a barn. What that means is there's a player on the court who is struggling to make shots, okay? Here's the deal. Whether you rim out or you airball, you miss a shot. Sin is the same way. Whether you've rimmed out in life or you just utterly airballed and shot on the other goal or whatever, I don't know, you've missed the mark. Sin levels the playing field. If you shoot at a target, and you miss by an inch, or you miss by a mile, you still miss. So what then is that mark? What then is that standard? This is important. This mark is both moral or ethical, as well as relational. Some of us group in tradition only focus on the moral and ethical side. And that's true. And they for, but we've forgotten about the relational component of the break of glory. It's relational as well as ethical, which again speaks to the dual tension of injustice and idolatry. Injustice, moral or ethical miss. Idolatry, relational break. Break of presence. And here's where we find ourselves in the moment. We live in an age that assumes the way to eternal life or, quote unquote, get to heaven isn't through the exclusivity of surrendering to Jesus as Lord, but by simply being a quote-unquote good person. The problem is that the standard of goodness is subjective to our opinions. It's totally subjective in terms of the standard of goodness when left to humans. This is what is called in the realm of sociology, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Come on. Which, if we think logically about this, and we want to be a logically thinking community, creates a moral social hierarchy. This, this phrase, moralistic, therapeutic deism, was named by the now Notre Dame and former UNC sociologist Christian Smith, as well as Melinda Denton. And there are several core beliefs that characterize the thinking and behavior of the group. And I'll be honest, some of us have been influenced by moralistic therapeutic deism, or MTD as it's kind of shortened. Some of these components are belief in a God who remains distant from people's lives. People are supposed to be good to each other, i.e. moral or ethical. The universal purpose of life is being happy and feeling good about oneself. There are no absolute truths which, by the way, is a contradiction in terms. It's a logical fallacy, okay? If anyone ever tells you there's no absolute truth, ask them, is that true? <laughs> the ignorance in society is mind-blowing. God allows good people into heaven. God places very limited demands on people. And do you know that roughly 74%, according to one study of Christians, would ascribe to moralistic therapeutic deism. And in that, 
91% of those people, or, or these people, would say that we aren't in need of saving. Sin is not an issue of human nature. And in this, here's what we end up getting. We get God as cosmic therapist and guru versus rabbi and king. As the researchers explained, for most teens, nobody has to do anything in life, including anything to do with religion. Quote, unquote, whatever is just fine if that's what a person wants. The greatest issue in our moment in society is not atheism. It's not. The greatest issue in the West is what I call a la carte Christianity. Little bit of, little bit of this, a little bit of this, a little bit of this. It's like K&W, Christianity. And ain't no young people going to K&W, so why are we going to do it in the realm of religion? I don't understand. That is our greatest issue. According to Barna Research Group, the fact that a greater percentage of people who call themselves Christian draw from moralistic therapeutic deism than draw from the scriptures says a lot about the state of the Christian church in America in all of its manifestations. As Christian Smith noted, simply and objectively stated, check this out, Christianity in this nation is rotting from the inside out. Yet Paul says clearly and specifically, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin creates a moral fracture as well as a relational fracture. A broken piece of pottery is broken no matter the size of the crack. The law exposed human brokenness and sin like a mirror. And this gets articulated earlier in Romans chapter 3 and later in Romans chapter 7. Pastor Josh White, who's a uh, pastor in, in Portland, Oregon, he's also an artist, says this, the righteousness of God is an impossibility when it comes to human ability. Our ability to live up to God's holy standards as sinful people, as people that have been infiltrated by this corruption of the image of God, requires a divine intervention. Listen, sin infiltrates every facet of your life, not just some facets. Every facet of your human existence, sin has stained. And we need divine intervention. So Paul then starts talking about this divine intervention using three words, three deep words, two in particular that are, are, are challenging. The first one is justification. The second is redemption. And the third is sacrifice. If we see in verse 22 again, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So justification. How many of you grew up in spaces where you heard this word a lot? Justified justification constantly being talked about. And you're like, I don't even understand what's being communicated. Justification is legal language. It's legal language. It's, a, it's, it's law language. It's being forgiven or acquitted and made in right standing. And this is the act whereby God creates a new people with a new status in the new covenant as part of the new age. So don't be, don't be intimidated by justification. Nothing to be intimidated by. When we are justified, 
a verdict has been given to believers in Jesus ahead of the day of judgment. And there will be a day of judgment. If God is just, there will be a day of judgment. But thankfully, God enters into the middle of history through Jesus so that when we put our trust in his atoning sacrifice, we then are able to be made just prior to the day of judgment. In other words, believers, the verdict's already been given. We have been made right. We have been made just in the eyes of God. So we don't have to worry about day of judgment. And judgment will come. And some of us hate that idea. But here's the deal. If God is just and we want justice, there has to be judgment. If God is holy. I think it's so interesting that we want justice all around us, but we don't want justice on ourselves. It requires all of humanity. No one is able to become righteous on their own accord. Not a single person. Because again, when we say, oh, what about good people? What is good? Who who is good? Help me understand. In an objective world, you can't determine goodness on the basis of subjective opinion. The second is redemption. And redemption is liberation language. It's freedom. Okay? To get back what is rightfully yours. This goes back for Paul to the Exodus story. To the Israelites being liberated out of captivity in Egypt. The release of captured prisoners. Again, this is freedom language, redemption. We, all of us, prior to entering into covenantal communion with God, are enslaved to sin. Enslaved to sin. And our animalistic desires. We're enslaved to ourselves, the world, and the devil. These are the three enemies of the soul, as articulated by um, St. John of the Cross, and then re-articulated in John Mark Homer's new book, Live No Lies, which there's a book study going on talking about this stuff. We see here the three enemies of the soul, ourselves, our flesh, the world, and the devil, believing and living into lies that culture and the world have normalized. Here's a good example. In our moment, feeling good is more important than being good. Feeling good is more important than being good. Or having power over is more important than having power for. All of this is captured in the popular phrase, we've talked about it a lot, be true to yourself. But here's the problem. I'm going to share it again. Which self? Your true self or your false self? We have multiple expressions of ourselves. Who are we talking about? And did you know that be true to yourself was originally coined in the Shakespeare play Hamlet, which was the phrase, to thine own self be true. And it was spoken by one of the characters, Polonius, who in the story isn't the wise one, but the foolish one. Think about it. Be true to yourself is not a wise statement. It's a foolish one. It's a foolish one. But we live in this moment that says, be true to yourself. But what self? The true or the false self? I even find it fascinating. We have such um, an overwhelming sense of admiration for Sigmund Freud in our moment. Even though, i said this before, he's been debunked by all of modern psychology, including Carl Jung, who was his apprentice. Basically, this idea that our highest experience as humans is to indulge 
in the desires of our libido. And that the repression of desires leads to ultimate neurosis. Here's the problem with this, though. Prior to Freud, self-control and restraint actually was the focus of being good and contributing to the common good. But the problem with this, though, is it is limiting our deepest desires to merely just an appetite that goes away. The pursuit of pleasure is the pursuit of dopamine rather than happiness that is contentment over the long haul. Happiness and pleasure are not the same thing. Pleasure is about dopamine. There's legit studies. Pleasure releases dopamine. Happiness releases serotonin. Pursuit of pleasure produces addiction over time. Okay? And in this, if in fact sexual behavior is the ultimate of the human experience, then why does it always come to a dramatic halt? And we still want more. Why? We want something eternal. But even at the height of sexual pleasure, it comes to an end. An end. So, that was another side step. Feel free to do some research on your own. So God, through Jesus, justifies, redeems, and offers himself as a sacrifice, being both the judge and the judged. He becomes the one for the many. Verse 25 to 26. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So, how is our redemption and our justification made possible? It is through the sacrifice of atonement. Jesus freely offers himself as a sacrifice to bring oneness. That's what atonement language is all about, oneness, to bring wholeness or oneness to all who believe and receive, to all who trust, to all who surrender control. And here's the deal. Reception comes after release, not before. And this is where most people hit a wall. Most don't trust enough to release. Most don't believe that Christ is who he really says he is, so I'm not going to release. Even though God's character has been demonstrated by his work on the cross. There is no other religion in the world where God demonstrates his goodness. He demonstrates it in the person of Jesus. But to receive, we have to release and surrender every facet of our life. All of our possessions, all of our um, idiosyncrasies, all of our desires, all of our friends, all of our family, our job, our mo- all of these things, our desires, released to Jesus and say, guess what? They're not mine. Anymore, they're yours. Do what you will with them. Do what you will. That is the only way we can receive. If you're walking around carrying all kinds of baggage, how are you going to journey with Jesus? How can you receive any goodness? You have to release, and that's the hard part. It's that moment. It's kind of like when you're a kid at the pool in the summer, and your dad's like, all right, buddy, jump. Come on, I'm going to catch you. 
And you're like, bro, I don't know if dad can really catch me or not because he ain't been to the gym in months, you know? Jump! And the kid's like, I don't want to jump. I don't want to jump. Even though that father hopefully has demonstrated his goodness and trust over time. But the kid's like, I don't want to do it. Are we not the same way with the entirety of our lives? God says, jump. I'm here. I'm going to catch you. I've demonstrated it. Jump. That's my call to all of us today to release in order that we might receive. Trusting in Jesus, believing in Jesus with our full embodied existence, not just this mental ascent or intellect, an embodied faith releases God's holiness and righteousness into and onto us, acquitting us and setting us free and deeming us as just eternally, as set free as redeemed people. He makes atonement possible. He makes oneness possible. And in the realm of atonement theory, there's three different kind of primary theories of atonement. And I love that the theologian Josh McNall kind of positions all of these as a mosaic. Some of these you've heard before. Some of them are deep for you, but that's okay. I'm believing in your intellectual capacity today. Just like last week, you're doing great. Keep it up. Here's the first one. It's called recapitulation. Okay? You're learning a lot today. Paul will get more into this in Romans chapter 5. But in this, Jesus is like a second Adam retelling a new humanity story. He's recapitulating. He's retelling this new humanity story. By achieving what humans were meant to achieve, that they, they couldn't. Adam and Eve couldn't. They didn't. All of humans didn't. And he represents all of humanity as a federal head. He represents all of us. This is, this is recapitulation. He's representing all of us by living this new human story. The second is one we're probably familiar with if we grew up in specifically reform spaces or Calvinist spaces. It's penal substitution. Here is penal substitution in the clearest sense. Jesus takes the just penalty that all of humanity deserves, that being death, as a substitute and by being himself just, cancels out the debt. This is like a deep math problem that God's having to figure out, and he's doing it in Jesus. Now, where people go awry in the penal substitutionary atonement theory is they make it seem as though Jesus is God's whipping boy on the cross, and that the Father beats the pulp out of Jesus on the cross, and that's not it. Why? That's a Trinitarian issue. That's heresy. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are one. God is doing something on the cross. God himself is on the cross, and God dies on the cross, and God resurrects out of the tomb. There is no separation. They're all participating. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are participating in the crucifixion and in this substitutionary act. Okay? So don't get caught up on caricatures of substitutionary atonement. Think of it more logically, like we're trying to do here. Here's the third one, and this is the ultimate end of Christ's work on the cross. It's called Christus Victor. And the implication of Christ going to the cross as both God and man, perfectly righteous, he achieves victory. He is victorious. Eternal life cancels death. Light conquers the darkness. And here we see these mechanisms or these theories, and there's debate about all of these, but I think that the the biblical story speaks to all three. Recapitulation, penal substitution, and Christus Victor. This is how Christ accomplishes our redemption and our justification. Now for a very, like, layman's translation. Think of it in some ways like the Hunger Games. Okay? The idea of volunteering as tribute 
representing the whole of your people as a sacrifice. Now, it's, it's incomplete, but it helps in some regard. Does that make sense for some of you? Some of you are still like, I'm t- I was lost like 10 minutes ago. Uh, but Hunger Games, think about it. Or have you guys seen Chronicles of Narnia before? Language in the Wardrobe, anybody? Any? Nobody's seen the Chronicles of Narnia? Homework this week. Watch The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. See the story of Aslan, and you'll get an idea, somewhat of an idea, of what we're articulating here with these three deep theological words, okay? So here's what St. Athanasius has to say, a North African church father. By surrendering to death the body which he had taken, being Christ, as an offering and sacrifice, free from every stain, he immediately abolished death for his human brothers and sisters by the offering of the equivalent. God displays his true character by demonstrating his love, justice, and righteousness on the cross. And when this happened, this sacrifice became both a propitiation and an expiation of our sin, which means it was a cleansing as well as a withholding of God's judgment or God's wrath. It might be more accurate to say that when we are cleansed, By the blood of Jesus, like we just sang about a second ago, God's wrath is propitiated or lifted. Because again, God is just. This all is enacted when we believe. When we trust. Not partially, not just with the mind, but with every aspect of our being. Surrendering our will to him. We become redeemed, set free, justified, and rescued. Some of you came in today and all you ever did was pray a prayer. But I don't know that maybe, maybe or maybe not, maybe you never have been truly redeemed because you don't even understand what you're speaking into or you're receiving. But it isn't just a moment that we're redeemed. It's like entering through the door of a new home, entering into a new life. Dr. Michael Gorman says sinners are not just counted righteous. We are made righteous. This is because when God speaks, God acts God declares, and that which is spoken happens. When God speaks that you are justified, when he speaks that you are made new, when he speaks that you are redeemed, he is entering into a transformative process. Something is happening to you. Something will happen to you until you are glorified at the end of time. It's not just a moment. We aren't just counted righteous. We are made righteous and transformed into righteousness over time. And Paul gets into this in the next unit of thought or the implication of justification. So here is kind of my final question. All of us have come to this question. Are you becoming what you have been declared? Are you becoming what you have been declared? Dr. Derwin Gray says, being born again happens in an instant, but learning to live as a child of God takes a lifetime. I go back to this over and over and over again. You can be made new in a moment, but learning to live as who you truly are, a child of God, takes an entire lifetime. Are you becoming what you have been declared? I'm going to get Anderson to come up if he can. We're going to wrap up our time together this morning. Is the fullness, is the fullness of your heart surrendered 
Have you fully trusted in Jesus and his saving work on the cross? Or is it just a portion? Because just a portion is not full trust. For the kid on the side of the pool to look at dad and say, I know you can catch me. You can do it. Yeah, I know you can. And dad's like, jump. And you're like, I'm not going to jump. Some of you have just articulated, I trust in Jesus, but you haven't jumped. And guess what? There's all other kinds of people in society in the pool also saying, jump. So you have to ask, are they or is it trustworthy? I've gotten really into this cool little rock band from California recently called Gable Price and Friends. Some of you know Gable Price and Friends. A bunch of little hipsters with mustaches playing rock music. Wearing vintage Dale Earnhardt t-shirts that probably cost 60 bucks. Interesting, right? They have this song called 10%. And there's this beautiful kind of stanza of lyrics in this song. It's about having a fractured heart that a lot of us just tie their heart to God. 10%. There you go. God's like, nah, bro, full heart. You want full life, you have to get full heart. Here's some lines from that, that song. The perfect polished pastor cannot save you. Your Myers or your Briggs won't buy your sins. You can break the alabaster on a podcast. Deconstruct the light till none can be let in. Self-discovery can only get you so far. Your heaven sent and only home will set you free. There's a Middle Eastern man with holes inside his hands and he's out to get you. I fear that many of us have just given 10% of our heart and we call that believing. We call that trusting. But we haven't jumped. We haven't entered through the doorway of redemption and salvation and justification, the journey, the beautiful journey. But there's a Middle Eastern man with holes in his hands. And he's out to get you. He's out to get me. So as we close today, I'm actually going to get Grace and Corey. Come on up. So our prayer team folks. And I know we covered a lot of dense ground today, but this is very simple. Jesus wants all of your heart, all of your trust, because he's demonstrated his goodness. How can you say he's not good? How honestly can you say he's not good? He's demonstrated it on the cross. So if you would close your eyes this morning and maybe some of you in this space, you need that moment, that entry point moment to say, I just showed up today, honestly. <laughs> but some, something's been tugging in my heart. I think it's the spirit of God. I don't know what it is. But maybe today is my day of redemption my day of redemption by trusting in Jesus and entering into the journey it doesn't, it doesn't stop with the moment it's just the open door to a new journey if that is you and you want to be able to profess and confess that Jesus Christ is King and Lord and you want to surrender your whole heart to Him I want to ask you to come up come up to one of these two 
because I think there's some of us who haven't. The fullness of our bodies, heart, mind, and spirit. And I also feel like there are many things that we're carrying to where we can't receive. We haven't released and we need to confess. We need to just share the things. And here's the deal. We can't just have faith that is in our seat intellectually. It can't just be our heart. It's got to be embodied. And the movement to come and receive prayer is embodied faith. To come forward and just say, here's an aspect of my life that I haven't released. Here's 5% hasn't been released. It's totally mine and not God's. I know there are people in the space. That's you. That's me. This is an opportunity to just reorient ourselves. So would you come, would you come forward embodied faith this morning to Corey or to Grace to just confess there's a space in my life it could be good or not good it needs to be confessed and don't be ashamed don't be ashamed don't be afraid just come confess it verbally it's embodied faith embodied faith you don't want to get home later today and be like oh man I really should have just stepped out or just say I want to jump I want to jump 